Welcome to Photographers Talking, the podcast that brings you some of the most innovative and respected photographers in the business. We'll find out what goes on behind the camera and why it's every bit as interesting as the images you see. I'm Chris McNulty. I've been a photographer and picture editor for over 20 years and I'll introduce you to the people who make photography the most interesting and dynamic media in the world today. And there are things that do stick with you, but whenever you can, yeah, you have to help people. Otherwise, what are you? Cahill McNaughton is a photojournalist. He was part of a team of Reuters photographers who were awarded a Pulitzer Prize for their work in Bangladesh photographing the Rohingya refugees in 2017. Over a million people fled to neighbouring countries when they were driven from their homes in Myanmar in what the United Nations later described as a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Growing up in Ireland during the Troubles, Cahill was inspired to become a photojournalist at an early age. He left school to become an apprentice with the Irish News, where his first job was to sweep the darkroom floor. He soon became an established photographer in his own right, working for newspapers and press agencies in Ireland, Britain and India. He has won numerous awards, including Photographer of the Year Ireland and UK Press Photographer of the Year. There are links to his website and social media in the description of this podcast. At the time of the Rohingya crisis, Cahill was Reuters' chief photographer in India. I began our conversation by asking when he first became aware of the emerging situation. It's in your interest to know what's going on at all times, you know, as much as possible yeah. around the world, because you never know where you're going to be asked to go next. So <laughs> you need to have yeah. a, a decent grasp on uh, political events uh, across the globe. So I was aware of the the Rohingya uh, crisis, as they call it, uh, although I would call it genocide now. Uh so I had done some research beforehand. No, I wasn't aware of it. But whenever news started trickling in across through yeah. Reuters as well, because we were covering it, our, our people on the ground were covering it there. So whenever that uh, news started trickling in, then it sort of landed in my radar and I started researching and I realized that it, although this is uh, this was a massive spike in events, like the Rohingya have been persecuted for many, many, many years, and uh, yeah. there was uh, flows of people that w- that fled Myanmar, which would have been Burma at the time, uh, many years beforehand. This this was just a, a further escalation of that. Although now there must have been a time when it was clear that you were going out to this job. When did you arrive? Were, was already camp set up, or were there? Were there thousands of people there already, or were you seeing people arriving every day? Yeah, the, th- the thing was, I didn't arrive at the very start of the story. You know, there had been teams of right. Reuters photographers there there beforehand. I had to kind of campaign to get to get the chance to go there. So we already had a, an established way of covering the crisis at the time. It was two weeks in, and then you were out again, and we were doing it on okay. a rotational mm-hmm. basis. So I was already able to get as much information as I could from from my colleagues that had already been already been shooting there and I was seeing what they were what they were filing every day. The thing is the camps there were camps, there are camps already there that have been in existence for many, many, many years. And there's generations of families that have actually well, one or two generations that have actually grew up in the camps. So the camps are already yeah, established, okay. but they are weren't established for the the up to one million people that were about to arrive. So yeah. yeah, when I got there, it was uh, I used the term biblical. It was like a biblical yeah. scene. You were faced with thousands and thousands of people fleeing some of the worst atrocities you could imagine. So uh, you can imagine when you're confronted with that, uh, what what it looks like, and especially in, you know, you've got the it's in a jungle, 
and it's in the monsoon season, so this all just adds to the drama. The images that you've taken there, uh, the first two of which in the set are part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning portfolio, what comes across in the in the images are hunger, uh, there's sickness, but what comes over in every person's face is, is desperation. And I take it you don't have to go far to look for that, do you? No. Well, the thing is, you're not even you're not looking for it. You're you're photographing what yeah. what is there. So, and that that is just the constant. It just runs through everything. You know, it's a te- it's a ab- absolutely apocalyptic scene. There's no need to go hunting for anything. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just, yeah. it's just yeah. grim. Is is a simple way of putting it. And so I was there just documenting the the grimness that I was faced with. Uh, if you are interested in, or if you go, how I would describe it is the faces almost are Goya esque. They look like uh, the the. The faces that Goya would paint—that's that's what I what sticks in my head. Does that help you while you're there to relate it to art? Does, it, does that remove you somehow from it? Uh, do you have to be slightly removed from the you know this, this chaos that you're seeing every day, or are you plugged into it completely and are you living part well, of it? Well, it's it's a funny thing. It's it's there is no real black and white answer to this. Okay, you do have to be yeah. somewhat distant from what you're photographing otherwise you wouldn't be able to cope you wouldn't be able to do your job and you wouldn't be able to approach things in a professional manner but in order to get the empathy across and show empathy with your subject and to get their story across you have to plug into it in some way you know you can't just be a casual observer That that well maybe some people can but that's that's not how I work. You have to connect somehow with your with the subject. You have to have some sort of empathy, but you have to be very careful about how far you go. Otherwise, you step across from being somebody that's recording the scene to actually being part of the scene yourself, and that can be a very tricky uh, balancing act. And there are times when you have to become part of the scene as well, or because you're. Okay. Uh, uh, human being and you know if somebody's in desperate need in front of you sometimes you just have to help you can't do this all the time but for god's sake if you see somebody that you can help in front of you you've got to help them if you can that's just human nature you know whenever i close my eyes at night i can sleep much easier because if i was to be haunted by you know, there are times when you can't help everybody and there are things that do stick with you, but whenever you can, yeah, you have to help people. Otherwise, what are you? Is that part of the reason why you're on a fortnight rotation? Is that a kind of realisation that you can't be as immersed in a job like that for you know months on end? Exactly. Although I did try, like I campaigned to get back again, but it didn't happen. But one of the reasons right. why you were doing this is because the next person then would come in with fresh eyes and a fresh new approach. Because if you see something yeah. day in, day out, eventually it becomes the norm, no matter how crazy it is. And you stop thinking that it's interesting to photograph or that it's significant, whereas it is. The story doesn't stop. So you need okay. somebody coming in with a fresh pair of eyes to maybe have another approach and to look at things and shoot them, shoot things that you maybe would uh, not find uh, alarming anymore because you've become desensitized so it's very very important to do that and for the photographer's mental health as well because yeah, it, yeah it's course. two weeks but it's two weeks 
full on. You know, it's not nine to five, it's two weeks nonstop. So from the moment you close your eyes to you wake up again, that is the only rest you have. And that isn't even very long because, you know, you're waking up before before the sun rises and you're going to bed long after the sun sets. So, you know, you are right. physically and mentally exhausted at the end of that time anyway. If you're working on a job like this, you'll be photographing people, you'll be photographing an event, but you have to stop photographing whatever you're doing to select your images and send them at some point so that, you know, they can be distributed, in this case, around the world. Now, do you have a base that you're working from or are you, how, how is that working? Are you in and out? Uh, do you travel to the camps every day or are you? Right. Well, each each different uh, assignment, uh, you approach it differently. But the, the thing is that you're trying to get your pictures out as, as soon as possible because, uh, you know, it is you are in competition with other news agencies there, yeah. other photographers. And so as an agency are providing a service that people are paying for. And so they expect to see new pictures, new stories, new words, new footage all the time. There are different uh, deadlines. There are deadlines constantly around the world. The sun rises and sunsets at different times all around the world. So there is always somebody looking for the latest pictures. But then logistically, it was very, very difficult in this situation to find somewhere to file from the actual in the field at ground zero. What I would tend to do is go to the wherever it was I was going to shoot that day. It was generally maybe an hour, two hours drive from the hotel. Then I would shoot as much as I could quickly, get back, file some pictures. So then there would be pictures for the clients and I could breathe. I could relax then for the rest of the day knowing that I have already filed for the day and then I can take more time about what I'm going to ship for the rest of the day. But if I happen to come across something that was of particular interest or I thought was really newsworthy, then, you know, you would have to file that as quick as possible. But this changes, you know, from assignment to assignment. This is just my approach to this particular assignment. It's it's worth saying for people who are not in the news business that it's not just that desks and organizations are looking, just looking for the content because they want to see it. They're looking for that content so that they can tell the story of this emerging crisis, aren't they? To play a narrative every night on the news and in the papers. And that keeps people interested and that keeps the pressure on the story it reports to the world so everyone knows what's going on, which is why you're there, isn't it? Yes. And every, every, yeah. Not everybody will report that in the same way and they've got their own angles that they're taking. You know, some maybe newspaper will maybe be focusing on the aid handout that day. So they'll need pictures from the aid handout to illustrate their picture, <clears throat> their story. Maybe somebody else will be talking. Their their own journalist will have uh, come across uh, a boat that cap- capsized when it was trying to come across from Myanmar and... Uh, uh, several people were washed up on the beach you know they'll they'll need pictures to illustrate that so it's not one size fits all mm-hmm. you're constantly juggling trying to trying to satisfy as many people as possible yeah yeah so it's a tricky one but then experience comes into play as well that you don't get overwhelmed with the situation because you still have to yeah. go about your day-to-day job 
as focused and calm as you can be in one of the biggest humanitarian disasters I've ever witnessed. Uh, we should actually say, I don't know if we mentioned earlier, that this was actually in Bangladesh where you were. Cox's Bazaar, is that right? Is that where you were? Yeah, I was based in Cox's Bazaar. This was yeah. in Bangladesh, which incidentally, Cox's Bazaar, which people wouldn't realise, or a lot of people wouldn't realise, is where most Bangladeshis go for their honeymoon or their holidays. It's a seaside resort. Oh, right. It okay. is right. home to, I think, one of the longest uninterrupted stretches of beach in the world. So the place okay. is stunning, stunningly beautiful as well. And when you get back into Cox's right. Bazaar, which is the town, there would be people there having their honeymoon pictures taken on the beach. Okay. So yeah, you're leaving well, that and you're heading into this hellhole, you know, where yeah. you're seeing the worst things imaginable. And then you're heading back to somewhere where somebody's celebrating one of the happiest days of their life. So the juxtaposition of that it it was it was very uh, tiring over over the two weeks. This probably seems like a good uh, time to actually speak about some of the pictures. And one that really stands out to me. You speak about juxtapositions there. It's the little albino boy with the the camps in the background, and there's a kind of greyness to the, the rest of the photograph. And he's this brilliant white hair and white colour with these red shots on and it just it gives an incredible contrast to the picture it was obviously memorable for you can you tell me about that little guy well just as you say uh, the young lad actually he just uh, stood out oh he was uh, yeah. very striking looking so I, I took a picture of him even if I hadn't have been in the situation or if we hadn't been in the situation we were in, I probably would have tried to get permission to take his photograph anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a memorable image. It's maybe not as dramatic as the other ones. It's the stillness of it, I think. I don't know. I, I, I'm really kind of drawn to it. But it leaves an impression. Yeah, there's a calmness. There's a calmness to the, the image, I think. Yeah. And amongst the chaos that's happening or the situation he's in, he seems very calm and serene. The other thing, when you look at the, when you go through the whole set, the thing that I come away, you're a parent as well, is the children really, isn't it? One bizarre picture, it would seem bizarre by everyday standards, is the woman who's got the plastic bag over her, her child's head. I presume he's been crying and it's just something to give him a little bit of comfort and relief from the rain. Yeah, no, it's just uh, to uh, shield, shield him from the rain. So... Yeah, you just make do with whatever you have in the in the situation, and that's what I saw. People just making do. Um, you've got no other choice. There literally was no other option. So this this is what she did. Yeah. So fair play to her. A mother a mother will do whatever is is required to look after her children, and this this mother is is doing that. As you say about the children, that's one of the things that I noticed was the children actually. Although they're they're still innocent, but they had somehow lost their innocence. You could see in their eyes that there was a, you know, there's yeah. a, a seriousness to it. You can see there's they've seen. You can tell that they they've seen things that nobody should ever see, especially a child. And one of the things that stuck st struck me about my whole time there was, uh, you know, you've got thousands and thousands of children around. And you know yourself as a parent, children are noisy. You know, they're laughing. They're, they're not laughing, yeah. they're crying. You know, <laughs> they're making noise. Oh, they're asking yes, you for something. They're constantly <laughs> making noise. Uh, yeah. There was very little noise in the camps. There was no, there was only, there was really? no laughter. 
and you never saw any smiles. Okay. Now it took me a few days to to figure out what what it was. You know, I I just knew something was missing. Yeah. There was something strange, but it was this, the stillness and the quietness. Apart from whenever you're in the aid distri- distribution points, just this eerie silence. And when you've got hundreds of thousands of people and there's no laughter or smiling, that has a an incredible effect on you. Well. As coincidence would have it there, um, I think what you're saying there, which I don't think I've ever really had anyone else say um, about the quiet, the kind of hush over the camp. I'm looking at an, at an image just now. There's a lady with a headscarf. Uh, it's blue, and she's cradling a little baby. It looks maybe about six months old, if that. And the eye contact that you have, that she has with you is incredible. Now, you would think that if there was a big, tall guy with a camera point at, at a group of people in a room like this, everyone would be looking at you, but she's just got this incredible eye contact with you, and other people seem to have other things to think about. Well, you've, that's think- that's exactly it. I've, I've been asked this many times before about, uh, you know, how can you go about your job without people reacting to the camera? Because, you know, as photojournalists, you, you don't want people reacting sometimes to your presence. But whenever you're yeah. immersed in a situation where people have got basically much more important things to worry about than some guy going about with a camera, you just, you know, I could have been walking about those camps with a clown outfit on and I would have got the same reaction from people. They had just much more important things to think about. So I, I was course, nothing. Yeah. And and that's exactly yeah. what I what I should have been, nothing, because you know, those people have much more things to worry about than some, as you say, yeah. some privileged white guy taking their picture. Now, the only thing that I could hope is because I am a privileged white male that I'm able to use that in some way to get their message across to the people and to get their message out and maybe help them in some way. And that's how I, I, how I look at the situation and that's, that's how I approach my work. Of course. Is there an image from that set? Uh, that I'm looking at on your website that is memorable for you. I don't want to call it a favourite, but is there an image for you that sums the whole thing it changes, up? It changes all the time because uh, they evoke different memories at different times. And I'm still I'm still remembering, you know, situations that happen now, things that I've forgotten about. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll see something and it'll just trigger a memory or a smell or a sound. So, but there is a yeah. there is a an image of a lady holding a child in a orange robe, and she's standing in front yeah. of a black background. That that is one of the most uh, memorable memorable images I I have at the time. I would uh, I would yeah suggest that anybody that's listening to this goes and has has a look at the image. And uh, they'll they'll know what I'm talking about, but that that's something that will probably haunt haunt me for a long time. Yeah, let's let's just leave it for people to go and see that image and draw their own conclusions to it. Uh, you're not going to add much more to it by by us describing it. I don't think it's, it's something that really has to be seen. If I can ask you from a photographer's point of view, you're out there shooting this humanitarian disaster, but of course the world is still going on. So, what are the challenges that you that you're facing there every day? I see it's, it's it's wet, it's muddy, and as we know, equipment doesn't respond well to that kind of environment. How are you traveling on the day 
with cameras and, and gear and stuff like okay, that. Okay, well, if we detach ourselves from the horrific events that are happening and just uh, look at it from a logistical yeah. point of view, so logistics is one of the biggest problems you have. Getting yeah. from point A to point B, how do you get from wherever it is you're staying to to where it is you have to shoot? That's one of the biggest problems. And then how you're filing your pictures, because no matter how good your pictures are, if you haven't a reception of a phone signal, uh, and you can't send them back to your uh, agency wherever they may be, then the pictures are absolutely worthless, and the pictures have to be sent out yeah. as quick mm-hmm. as possible. So there's no point in sending them two or three days later. That's no good. So your communications yeah. are a big problem or comms. Then you've got the environmental issues of the weather. So if you're in a, uh, an area like this where it is covered in mud, thick, heavy mud that just sticks to you, and then it's wet and it's very humid, so your cameras are taking a real, real beating. So it's warm and it's wet, and they're two terrible combinations for cameras. And so the thing is, even if you cover these cameras, then the, the condensation that's created inside is wetting the cameras anyway. So when I was there, I had four cameras with me. And at one point, I had only one camera working. They were coming, they were working at different times, logistically, or just, it was very, very difficult. Then physically, it takes a toll on your body because, you know, I'm from, I'm from Ireland and working in this uh, tropical or subtropical environment in monsoon season is very tough on you. Then, then you've got problems with, uh, you know, the possibility of disease. That was a big thing we were always very, very aware of because when you've got a lot of people arriving and there's no infrastructure, there's no uh, clean water, there's no uh, sewage facilities, cholera was one of our biggest fears. So we were constantly listening to see if we could hear that there was any outbreaks of cholera because once that happens, then we have to take a whole new approach to covering the story. So that was was another thing. So... You know, you've you've got to do all these things. Then you've got to somehow feed yourself, and you've got to make sure you're hydrated, and you get some sort of rest as well. Because if you haven't got some sort of rest, then you know you're not going to be able to do your job. Because it's amazing how quickly the lack of rest can affect just your body, and your body just starts to break down. Any yeah. any new parent will soon will soon remind you of this. So you've got all of this going on before you even take a photograph. Let's say that your fortnight photographing this crisis comes to an end. So do you have a couple of days off, wash the, get your gear all back to, together? Are you on to the next job? Well, or? I'm still, I still got one eye on what is happening in India the whole time, the whole time, and I'm still feeling yeah. some calls from people back in India. But uh, no, I would have to say Reuters were excellent in this way that they 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 gave me some time off to try and uh, decompress from what had happened. So actually. Uh, I was, I decided that, uh, because of the proximity, I would, I would head to Kathmandu for, for the weekend and try and just have a wee break. I know that sounds extremely exotic and it is, but, uh, it would be the equivalent of maybe me going from Belfast to, to Glasgow for the weekend, you know, on an easy jet flight. Yeah. So I headed to Kathmandu for a few days and met, met up with my colleague there. Yeah. It was weird. I have to say coming from there and then. Uh, yeah. waking up one morning and you're in Kathmandu you're like what what has just happened the past few days you know 
And when you, you, you're away from the job, are you aware of the impact or how your photographs have been used? Uh, are Reuters telling you you've got this show here or, you know, you're, you're on the front page of that or do you get any you feedback? You do get feedback. Well, it all depends on who your boss is or who your colleagues are. Right. Because, you know, in different organizations, feed, there's a lot of feedback, some there's none. But as you probably know, feedback is extremely important for photographers especially because, you know, you're working your ass off, basically, then you just lose ownership of those pictures, of these things that you've put your, your yeah. life and soul into, and they're gone as soon as you send them. And you've you've got yeah. no uh, say on how or where they're used, and you don't know a whole lot about it. So, yeah, we would get feedback. But the thing is, over the years, I've tend when you're starting out, you check everything. You know, you're Googling your name, you're Googling the job you were yeah. on to try and see what newspapers used yeah. your pictures or where they were used <laughs> online. And this eventually becomes very, very toxic because, as you know, it's not always the best pictures that get used and, you know, sometimes to your advantage, but you've got no say in how pictures are used. So no, um, no. I generally wouldn't wouldn't ask you know, I would just wait if if there is a something out of the ordinary of the pictures are used in a particularly well way. I'll I'll let somebody else tell me about it. I wouldn't I wouldn't go looking for it. There must have been a year between taking the photographs and the the awards coming in. I, w- I would like to point out that I, the idea I say I say this all the time, but the the idea of like winning an award for photographing something so harrowing and tragic. You know, it doesn't sit well with me, so I, I prefer to use the term actually awarded. I think we were awarded uh, recognition okay. of the the work that we did and sharing this story with the rest of the world. Yeah, the thing was, even though it was a year later or whatever it was, the story was still ongoing. So there were people still sending pictures from there so, and the story still hasn't ended. Yeah. You know, it's still happening many years later. Like my life has moved on. But the Rohingya people, you know, their life hasn't uh, changed too much for the better. They're still not able to return to their, their rightful homes in Myanmar. We'll get back to the interview in just a minute. A few days after Kohol and I spoke, Myanmar was again in the news, this time as a result of a military coup. While the situation inside Myanmar is not clear, we can be fairly certain that the Rohingya refugees will not be returning home anytime soon. I've included links in the description of this podcast for background reading on the situation in Myanmar, including a UN fundraising appeal for the displaced Rohingya people. Back to our interview with Cole. There are a series of portraits that you do in Kashmir. It's quite a novel idea, the way that they're presented. I wonder if you could speak about the brief that you got on Well, there wasn't a brief, and uh, it's an idea I had myself, and that's, you know, yeah, uh, as a... A photojournalist and that you have to you have to have your own ideas that's what makes you you stand out from the rest of the people you have to have a an interest in the story and you have to go and look for the stories yourself you can't just go and tramp over old ground you have to break new ground yourself so it's important always to come up with ideas yeah, yeah i was up in kashmir which i have to say is one of the most beautiful places i've ever seen in my life the people are some of the most friendly people I've ever met in my life. But it's a pretty uneasy situation in Kashmir because it's it's basically uh, a militarized zone. It's a disputed area in the northwest 
of India. Some of it is in Pakistan and the rest of it's in India. So there's India-controlled Kashmir, India-controlled Pakistan. Anyway, I was up there and because of that, then you've got uh, one of the most militarized zones in the world and there is uh, a lot of conflict with the, the local population there who uh, see it more yeah. as an occupation rather than anything else. And so there's similarities. There are some similarities I found between it and the north of Ireland where I live or where, where I'm from. And that, yeah. that interests me greatly. So that's why why I was always keen to get to Kashmir, which uh, turned out to be <laughs> a bit of an issue. But uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Place. Was it easy for you to get to Kashmir? Do you have to apply to go you do there? Have, or do you, do you have to apply? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can go there, but once you're there, there are heavy restrictions in place and you have to register and... Uh, you, to work because there's curfews in Kashmir. There's complete lockdowns at time. Okay. And so you have to get curfew passes so you can get through checkpoints. But uh, yeah, it's it's a tricky place to work because you're constantly being uh, observed and watched and followed as I was by uh, not so plain clothes undercover policemen because I was <laughs> able to, I, they were getting yeah. pointed out to me all the time. But uh yeah, it it was a bit of an issue. And your idea was to photograph people from either side, from the, the military and from the were you calling it the stone throwers? Yeah. Uh, the people who would be rebelling against the, the, the local authorities. Yeah, well day. they call them stone pelters up there. Stone pelters. No, stone no, pelters, that's just sorry. the term they give them up there. Stone pelters. You know, these young guys are insurgents and militants as well. Or okay. depending on your point of view, they're freedom fighters, you know. So it's never completely black and white, you know. Who who it is you're photographing and who, what their alignments are, who is who is right and who is wrong. Once you uh, start scratching the surface of these stories, it's not always you know obvious who's the goody and who's the baddie. You know, the the goody doesn't always ride a a white horse and wear a a white cowboy hat. Uh, there are a yeah, series of I decided that you to photograph them. A series of portraits taking exactly the same way, shot with the same ca- the same focal length, everything, same lighting, same background, just so people could make up, see how actually similar they are. Uh, both sides are are armed. Uh, yeah, they have some a uniform of some sort, and they were all around the same age. You know, it's very much a toss of the coin where you end up, uh, whether you're the the guy in the the uniform that is doing a job because it's the only job available to him or maybe you're a student that uh, wants you know a better future for his family that feels the need to don a balaclava or a mask and start throwing stones at the authorities and then that leads to whatever and the way that you put this together is you you've got you say you've always got a roll of gaffer tape and you buy a bed sheet from the local bazaar tape it to the wall and you're at a safe house, is that right? And you 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 bring these people in, snap them, and then they go. Yeah. They, well, this was the uh, this was the stone pelters. It was in a sort of safe house. Yeah. So yeah. we went there, and it was under pretty extreme circumstances because you don't they're they're fearful that you've been tailed, and you're fearful that you've been tailed as yeah. well because you know these guys. You don't know how the military is going to respond. You know, they kick in the door. Who knows what's going to happen yeah. after that? It's anybody's guess. So 
you don't want to be hanging about. You can't obviously be carrying about lights or anything because that will alert people to what you're doing. And yeah. let's face it, I wasn't carrying lights or a studio set up with me to to Kashmir. But uh, with a little bit of knowledge and gaffer tape, you can do an awful lot. Do you do the same or are you invited into the military base? Yeah, it was in the military base. It, it was vital that we got both sides, otherwise the, the series wouldn't work. So there's one side isn't course, any more yeah. important than the other. It, just for the whole juxtaposition, you know, I needed the military to be on board and I needed the stone pillars to be on, on board. But uh, I didn't need either of them to really know that the other one was doing it. I suppose because they don't know that the other side have been photographed as well, you don't have to hide the material as much. Is that right? You're not slipping it into a sock when you're, you're going back to the hotel. What do you do with the photographs once you've taken them? Do you file them straight away so that they can't be deleted? In this instance, there wasn't time because I went straight from the safe house to the military post. So I only got the all clear that we were getting the military portraits when I was in the safe house. So that's how down to the wire it was. So I was actually photographing the soldiers on the same card with a timeline that was only like (laughs) half an hour apart. So if they had a scene in the back of my camera, there would have been a lot of questions yeah. asked. My goodness. Uh, yeah, I take it your heart's beating pretty hard at that point, but you're just you're driven on by achieving what you've come all this way to Yeah, well, you have to, to believe do. in what you're doing as well. Yeah. So I really passionately believe in what I'm shooting. So Those images do have an impact, uh, don't well, they? Well, that's, that's, um, that's the plan. You know, it doesn't always happen that way, but that's yeah. that's the plan. You leave Kashmir with these images that are probably controversial. What happens next? Well, it was this. This is the the funny thing. Nothing happened next, but it wasn't until uh, I went to pick up the the Pulitzer in New York. That's when things started taking a strange turn because I encountered an awful lot of trouble getting out of the country to start up to start with. So, and in hindsight, okay. now I know what, what the problem was. Uh, I had been flagged up in the system and uh, they were deciding what they were going to do with me. So okay. when I tried to re-enter the country, coming back from picking up the Pulitzer, long story short, I wasn't allowed back into the country. They put me on a plane, the same plane I'd come from, from Toronto, sent me straight back there. I had no idea what was going on. We couldn't find out what was happening. <laughs> this this went on for months where we were trying to find out. The authorities wouldn't tell us. They wouldn't speak to us at all. Okay. Now, Reuters is a massive news organization with their own team who you would think would uh, get answers. This was not the case. The Indian government just remained tight-lipped. Eventually, we found out that through government back channels that the Indian government didn't like, that I was highlighting the crisis or the the problems that they were having in Kashmir. And so rather than kick me out of the country, they had found the opportunity to stop me from getting back into the country. And so for several months, I was uh, jetting around the world, living out of a suitcase, uh, helping out in different bureaus around the world while we tried to get things sorted so I could get back into India where my job was, where my family was, where my partner was at the time, uh, you know, my life was. This 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah you put down your around, roots. Yeah. Coincidentally, around the same time, uh, my my father got ill. My mum was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so this added pressure to everything. So after a few months, I decided that I was going to take control of the situation because it was becoming more and more obvious that nothing was happening. And India is particularly good at doing nothing. They have all the time in the world. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. so yeah. I said, to hell with this. I left Reuters. I came home. I started looking after my family where I had to be, uh, be with my mom and dad and a particularly tough time for them, for all of my family. And uh, here I am still. And to be honest, I think uh, I don't believe in fate or anything like that, but I think I am exactly where I'm meant to be doing exactly what I'm supposed to be at the right time. It's not where I thought I was going to be. And to be honest, it's taken two or three years since this happened for me to come to terms with everything. It was very, very difficult at the start because you could say I was at the pinnacle of my career and then I just stopped dead. It's like I hit a wall. But uh, yeah, that's a temporary stop. I'm starting again. Uh, so, But I am where I'm supposed to be. And yeah, every, everything's good. I've got a, a, a beautiful dog. I live in a, in a cottage. Yeah, it's all good. I'm looking out the window at the, the Irish Sea now. It's Friday. Awesome. <laughs> it's Friday. Well, <laughs> that's a good start. <laughs> and let's see, you're in Ireland now and you're um, you're starting again, aren't you? For a long time, I read that you, you said that you didn't have a camera, but I see maybe you have two cameras. Yeah, now, I didn't right? have a camera for a long time because whenever I left, left Reuters I had to give them back all the all the camera equipment obviously and so yeah and I was so busy with other things that yeah I had no interest I had actually no interest in taking photographs uh, yeah. but that's not entirely true either because I had my uh, iPhone and I was co- always taking pictures of uh, of Murphy the dog my dog and taking videos so in a way, maybe that was some form of therapy for me because I I was still taking photographs, yeah. but it was of a totally unrelated or a totally different subject matter than I was normally using or used to documenting. But now I've got uh, cameras again, and uh, I'm starting to shoot again. One of the ways that it seems to me that you're building a brand uh, name for yourself—I don't know if that's quite the right term—is your Instagram page. And the cameraman T-shirts, those are quite interesting. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, well, cameraman is something that's come about. Actually, you can read the story behind it on on my uh, in one of my blogs. But it's very personal to me. It's a link to, to my son. And basically what happened was because I was away a lot when I was a, a photojournalist, I still am, but whenever I was away a lot, his his mum would get him to draw pictures of what what his dad was doing and stuff. So he yeah. drew this picture one time of a camera, a child's drawing of a camera, funny wonky lines and a wonky lens and that, and he wrote cameraman above it and it spelt wrong. This is a picture that I, I have taken with me all over the world and I would put it in the hotel room or the, the camp or wherever it was I was staying. Now it hangs, it hangs in my in my house. And that's sort of the ethos behind behind this uh, this range of merchandise or whatever you want to call it. And then Instagram, I just 
you know, I've t- always taken a lot of pictures of my dog since I've come home. And uh, I've actually created a new page specifically for him. I'm becoming some sort of bloody dog influencer. It's crazy. But it's somewhere where I can have fun and just take pictures when I'm out and about because I spend a lot of time out in the out in glens and roundabout and even traveling in my converted camper van and stuff. And so, yeah, so I, I enjoy that very much. And it's a, it's a bit of lighthearted relief from my actual other Instagram page, which, do, which does include all the the horrors and realities of everyday life which is very much hard-hitting photojournalism okay uh, that is uh, me just been handed a note to tell me that my partner's away to get a wee girl from nursery so i think you've probably got so- you've probably got something similar to go and do yourself don't you yeah I have to do the hoovering and i have to walk the dog <laughs> so there you go and i have to make the dinner so yeah rock and roll well, thanks to Cahal for sharing his journey, from photographing the Rohingya refugee camps to Kashmir and then being excluded from India and finding himself back in Ireland. If you haven't had the chance, then please visit Cahal's website where you'll see his work, his blogs, and of course the fantastic cameraman t-shirt. And of course, his Instagram page is a great way to follow what he's been up to. The link's in the description of this podcast. You can visit my website, chrismcnulty.co.uk, or find me on Instagram. Photographers Talking is a papercamera.co.uk production. Please visit the website for podcast pinhole cameras and much more. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please like, subscribe, or share with a friend. And thanks for listening.